We have the Bible reading up there. It's, uh, there's five sections of uh, Ruth that we'll be reading this morning. Ruth chapter 1, verse 11. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband, even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons. Would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. At this they wept again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. Chapter 2, verse 5. Boaz asked the foreman of his harvesters, Whose young woman is that? The foreman replied, She is the Moabitess who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She went into the field and has worked steadily from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, My daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with my servant girls. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the girls. I have told the men not to touch you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled at this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She exclaimed, Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I have been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and have come to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Chapter 2, verse 17. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered, and it amounted to about an ephah. She carried it back to town, and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her 
what she had left over after she had eaten enough. Her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead, she added. Or she added, that man is a close relative. He is one of our kinsmen redeemers. Chapter 4, verse 2. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, sit here, and they did so. Then he said to the kinsman redeemer, Naomi has brought back from Moab has come back from Moab is selling the piece of land that belonged to our brother Elimelech I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people if you will redeem it do so but if you will not tell me so I will know for no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. I will redeem it, he said. Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the land from Naomi and from Ruth the Moabitess, you acquire the dead man's widow in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this the kinsman redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. Ruth chapter 4 verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. Then he went to her and the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. The woman, the women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child laid him in her lap and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. May the Lord bless his word. I do hope you'll keep open your Bible to the whole of the book of Ruth and that also you will have found in your notice sheet a printed outline in some detail of uh, the results of my study. I hope that'll be useful. <coughs> when I first introduced uh, one of these three studies on godly women of the Bible... I expressed the hope that through these studies we might be able to do what our unbelieving neighbours seem to be unable to do. Uh, 
That is, answer the question, what is a woman? Well, we looked at the word of Deborah. We saw the courage of Esther. And today we go to the redemption of Ruth. Ruth was an unlikely candidate to become famous in Israel. Born in the kingdom of Moab, along the eastern shore of the Dead Sea, she would normally have lived out her life amongst her own people. Moab, sadly, was one of the offspring of an incestuous relationship among Lot's children. If you must, you can read that seamy story in Genesis 19. But it's hardly a proud beginning to a great tradition. At the time of Ruth, there were friendly relations between Moab and Bethlehem, one of the towns of the tribe of Judah. In any event, what what is normal for mankind is nothing to God. He is not limited by the bounds of geography, the embarrassments of family intrigue, or the restrictions of culture. Towards the end of May this year, traditional Jews will celebrate the Festival of Weeks. That's a remembrance of the law given to Moses for the people whom God had saved out of Egypt. Central to that festival is the reading of the book of Ruth. Far from being a destitute widow lost in the midst of time, Ruth the Moabitess would take her place in the genealogies of the two greatest Israelites who ever lived. She would become the great-grandmother of King David. Even more significantly, she would be the ancestor of Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, son of man, son of God, saviour and lord of all who trust in him. The book of Ruth initially tells the story, a very moving story, of a Jewish couple, Elimelech and Naomi, who because of famine in the days of Judges moved to Moab for survival. In time, their sons Marlon and Killian married local girls, but sadly, like their father, they died. So that within ten years of leaving Bethlehem, Naomi had lost her husband and two sons. She was left with childless daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. It was natural enough, therefore, for Naomi to return home when she heard that the Lord had come to the aid of his people and provided food for them again. Even after they set out on the journey, Naomi realised that there was no future for Orpah and Ruth in Judah. They were foreigners. And she could not provide another set of husbands for them. She urged them to go back and live out their life among their own people. They were widows. They could marry again. Amidst all the weeping, 
Orpah accepted Naomi's inevitable logic and turned back to Moab. Ruth's rejection of that idea has become the classic statement of commitment. 2,000 years on in history, in AD 1940, and 3,000 miles away from Bethlehem, Ruth's words echoed in the corridors of power. Ever reticent to take up the risk of helping neighbours, the might of America only offered sympathy, not weapons and warships to Britain, in her darkest hour. The unwillingness to help in World War I until virtually the final year of the conflict was the same in World War II until the Americans themselves were attacked by the Japanese. But their president had a scruffy, physically weak-looking Christian envoy named Harry Hopkins. He travelled to the very centre of the fire, as it were, in London. He was the conduit God used to connect directly with Winston Churchill, the man God raised up for that dark hour. Despite the official non-involvement of the nation, their president and England's Prime Minister were vitally linked by Harry Hopkins. At a farewell dinner in Glasgow early in 1940, he said to those who were gathered there, Churchill among them, I suppose you wish to know what I will say to President Roosevelt on my return. And then, after a suitable pause, he quoted the words of Ruth. Where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people. Thy God shall be my God. That, of course, is the old authorised version of chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. The classical words of Ruth and her commitment captured the moment in yet another day. We have it before us here, as don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me ever so severely if even death separates me and you. Though warmly welcomed in Bethlehem, Naomi, of course, grieved her losses. Even the absolute devotion of Ruth did not comfort her. So what you see in this book, first of all, is a perfect plan unfolds. Naomi and Ruth just happened to arrive in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Ruth just happened to go into the fields to glean. And she just happened to be in the field of Boaz. Gleaning, of course, was one of those things that was provided for in Egypt, in Israel, so that God's people would not starve, 
the poor were allowed to pick up the sheaves that dropped from the harvester's arms. In the purpose of God, the field Ruth chose belonged to Boaz. He soon spotted the pretty young woman and asked about her. In tenderness that Ruth never expected to find in this foreign place, Boaz welcomed her, urging her not to work too hard. Ruth wondered at this extraordinary kindness and you hear her asking Boaz there in chapter 2 at verse 10, why have I found such favour in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Now there are two things to note here. First of all, Boaz was a kinsman of Naomi's late husband and had a certain responsibility towards the two women. Secondly, Boaz had heard of Ruth's devotion to Naomi, how she'd left home and family and all that was familiar to come to Bethlehem with her mother-in-law. Boaz was deeply moved and ordered his servants to leave extra sheaves for Ruth to collect. The romantic among us will go, oh, isn't that lovely? He invited her to eat with him during the heat of the day. Naomi was thrilled at the amount of grain Ruth brought home and obviously enjoyed the leftovers from her lunch. On learning the kind man's name, she understood why Ruth was safe in Boaz's field and how she was provided with so much. The man's kindness was an expression of the Lord's care. Ruth was introduced to the idea that Israel's culture required people to care for their neighbours and especially their relatives. That man, Boaz, would play a very important part in her future. Naomi calls him there in chapter 2, verse 20, and it's the one you should underline, their kinsman redeemer. Sadly, some of the more modern translations waffle on a bit, but that's what it is, the kinsman redeemer. A perfect plan unfolds. The second thing to note from this book is that relationship, uh, responsible relationships is vital. The innocence of the account there in chapter 3 is almost too good to believe. Feeling her years, perhaps, and being concerned for a younger, younger woman alone, Naomi did for Ruth what Middle Eastern and subcontinental people do even to this day. She set out to make an arrangement for Ruth's marriage. It's not simply a matter of overcoming loneliness or even making provision for protection in the community. Here is a fundamental element of life's purpose expressed first in the creation, something, sadly, our society has forgotten. What a dreadful, dreadful day yesterday was in our God-forsaken land led by the Prime Minister. There's only one direction 
God said about the first person he made, it's not good that he should be alone. And so he made a wife for Adam. Now, not everyone is called to be married, but survival of society and the need for fellowship to overcome selfishness make marriage the ideal setup for life. This is why Christians, Jews, Muslims, and others are concerned at the current rush to destroy the concept of one man and one woman in a committed relationship for life. Whether the contract is civil or religious is not the point of concern. In the most natural way, Naomi discerned that it was not good for Ruth to be alone in the sense that she had no husband now with whom to share her life. The plan was set out step by step. Ruth was to make herself as attractive as possible. Now, men, I need to warn you, be careful when the ladies do that. (laughs) It can be a little bit like the spider saying, come into my web. Chapter 3, verse 3, wash, put on perfume, get dressed in your best clothes. Choosing the right moment, she was to present herself to Boaz in the cultural way of her time. It seems to have come as a bit of a shock to Boaz to find Ruth there with him. Look at verse 8 of chapter 3. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned and there was a woman lying at his feet. (laughs) Who are you? he asked. I'm Ruth, your servant, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a kinsman redeemer to me and to our family. Boaz endears himself to us as he reveals his humility in verse 10. He was overwhelmed that Ruth did not run to younger men, whether rich or poor, but came to him. And two things followed. Boaz did not take advantage of Ruth. He confessed that there were other kinsmen redeemers and one in particular more closely related than he. That man must be given opportunity first to take on the responsibility of caring for Ruth if he chose to do so. For Ruth, of course, it was a win-win situation. If the other man did not choose to act as kinsman redeemer then Boaz promised to do all that was required under the law. As well, Boaz permitted Ruth to stay the night. Verse 11, he praised her. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. He ensured that Ruth did leave the threshing floor early before anyone could recognise her and, of course, before wagging tongues might damage her reputation. In keeping with the strong, gentle care of this godly man, Ruth was given six measures of barley so that she did not return to Ruth empty-handed. Another lovely, moving touch. 
Naomi had every confidence in God and Boaz. Right steps forward in life require patience as we wait for fulfilment, something which is captured in this book as it unrolls. Living under grace, not under law, as we do in the New Covenant, leaves us wondering why the dotting of the I's and the crossings of the T are important here in the law. Why do they bother with such detailed obedience? Ruth, Boaz and Naomi may have sensed the leading of God's spirit, but they had had very little revelation about his ministry with them at that stage. That comes later. For the faithful in the days of the judges, outward and visible activities were meant to be a definite expression of grace within. There is in this Old Testament drama a demonstration of how God ensures the passing on of the truth from one generation to another. It does not depend on cunningly devised methods invented by powerful or devious people. Because the truth about God being related, uh, people being related to God by faith is so fundamental to the divine plan for mankind, God's methods cut right across cultural expectations and demands. How can the baton of faith be passed on by a Moabite like Ruth? Well, the answer is, the important factor is the message, not the messenger. A Moabite can claim faith in the God of Israel if God gives her the grace to do so. This is a wonderful comfort to us as we each consider our background. Culturally, for some of us sitting here this morning in this Christian fellowship, that would have been an impossibility. But with God... Nothing shall be impossible. A perfect plan unfolds. Responsible relationship is vital. And thirdly, loving kindness and the kinsman redeemer. The covenant term chesed, apart from being almost unpronounceable, is usually translated loving kindness. It also implies loyalty. And it's woven throughout the story of Ruth. By the loving kindness of God, our Saviour, the faithful live out their life of faithfulness to him and to each other. Even back in chapter 1, you hear Naomi saying to her kindly daughters-in-law, go back. And the words with which she blesses them Pick up the loving kindness of God. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. These young women have been loyal wives to Naomi's sons and loving towards her as daughters-in-law. They comforted Naomi in the incredibly painful loss of husband and sons in a foreign land. 
That loving kindness, a gift from God, enabled them to cross the cultural divide that would have separated them from one another. Both Ruth and Boaz demonstrate chesed to their family members throughout the story. What they do exceeds the minimum expectations of the law and the demands of custom and culture. Yet the importance of God's law is upheld within the book of Ruth. That law is an expression of God's character. Boaz acquired property beyond what was expected of him. In an act of chesed, loving kindness, he redeemed not only the land, but both Naomi and Ruth as well. The two widows had a secure and protected future. Since there was no one to actually inherit Elimelech's land, custom required a close relative, usually the dead man's brother, to marry the widow of the deceased person in order to continue his family line. You can read about that in Deuteronomy 25. This relative is called the Goel, that is, kinsman redeemer. Early that day, Boaz discussed the issue with the other male relative in the presence of the town elders. The other male relative was unwilling to jeopardise the inheritance of his own estate by marrying Ruth. So he relinquished the right of redemption, opening the way for Boaz to marry Ruth. They transferred the property and redeemed it, sealing the contract by the nearest kinsman redeemer giving one of his shoes to Boaz. Oh, that property transfer was so simple now. And all the brothers and sisters from India will say, Amen. It takes years and endless payments to lawyers there. Boaz and Ruth were married and had a son called Obed, who was the father of Jesse and who, as we all know, was the father of King David. Well, the rest, they say, is history. When Ruth's greatest descendant was born into the world, our kinsman redeemer had come. For through his selfless death and powerful resurrection, our Lord Jesus redeemed all who will trust in him alone as their saviour. God had said at the beginning of the history, let there be light and life. A story of blessing began to flow across the ages, which culminated in the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. He, in turn, passed on the baton to those who would run the race set before them. And so we who follow Jesus, being indwelt by his spirit, run that race by faith. Our commitment is to this pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Though the historical circumstances are different to those experienced by Naomi and Ruth, the commitment we make to our kinsman redeemer 
is no less sincere and strong. Like Ruth pledging herself to Naomi under God, we pledge ourselves to go forward with Jesus, the risen Lord and Saviour. With all our heart, we say to him who died and rose again for us, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I'll be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. Brethren, is it any wonder that believers struggle to fulfil their commitment to Christ considering the eternal significance it holds for them? Towards the end of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26 and verse 35, Peter and all the disciples promised their Lord, Though I should die with you, yet I will not deny you. Well, that ended in tears, as we know. Just 11 verses later, it's recorded, All the disciples deserted him and fled, as the scriptures said they would. Brethren, we cannot underestimate the importance of daily personal commitment to our loving Saviour God. Now, of course, there's no one who can assess that for us. Only we can assess it for ourselves. The responsibility comes right back on us, whatever your age, whatever the stage you're at. So I'm going to ask that we just have a moment of quietness now in which we wait on the Spirit of God to convict each of us and hopefully respond, and then I will pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your love is boundless. There is nothing that can resist your great purpose. You had no need of us and yet you chose to create us. So often we bring you very little joy and thanksgiving and yet you care for us. 
It is the cause of the utmost grief to those of us who know you personally to see how our family, friends and neighbours just plough on living in your world, enjoying your blessing, refuse to thank you. We acknowledge that by nature we're all like that. We thank you that your spirit is at work and that he takes your word and applies it to rebellious hearts like ours and sadly has to break them down so that our arrogance crumbles being useless We thank you that you apply the healing balm of the gospel which makes it clear that though you don't need us and we don't deserve you, you love us. We don't understand it all, Lord, and I guess we won't until we stand in your presence someday. But we thank you that in your mercy you've allowed us to hear yet again today the message we've heard before that there is no purpose in life apart from faith in Jesus, our kinsman redeemer, who has done all that is necessary to bring us back into fellowship with the God who made us. So we cry out this morning, individually and as a people, don't ask us to leave you, Lord. There's no future there. Grant us the grace to genuinely say with all our heart, where you go, I will go. And if I must die, then what's that to you? You are the Lord of life. You raise up the dead as surely as you raise your son Jesus from the grave. Lord, we pray now that you'll help each of us to throw away the last vestiges of personal pride and bring ourselves to the point of realism. We're like the prodigal son will say, I'll go home and say to my father, I'm not worthy, but take me in. We pray, Lord, for grace to be able to say, all that we have achieved, Lord, you have done for us. Give us the grace today to be a people who can truly say, Yes, I am a sinner. But by the goodness and purpose of God, I have been saved by his grace alone. We ask it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.